Hello, and welcome back to Parallel Passion. This is episode 15, and this time I'm joined by Linda Lucas. Yes, you heard that right. The co-founder of Rails Girls, the author and illustrator behind the Kickstarter success story Hello Ruby, a TED resident whose talks have gathered over 2 million views and recipient of many awards. To name just a few, 30 Under 30 in Northern Europe 2014, Finland State Award for Children's Culture 2014, Future of Culture Award 2017, DIA Gold 2017, Ruby Hero 2013, and many, many more. She does so many things, it's crazy, and yet she took the time to be on this show. I am humbled and honored to have had a chance to speak with her, and I hope you will enjoy listening to our conversation and find it as inspiring as I did. Now, let's get right to it. Hi, Linda. Welcome to Parallel Passion. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's my absolute pleasure. Um, now, I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this knows who you are, but still, um, if they don't, could you give like a short introduction? My name is Linda. I'm a children's book author, illustrator, um, mediocre programmer, <laughs> a lot of different things. And I write children's picture books about the whimsical and wonderful world of programming and technology and computers and networks and I've written so far three books that have been published in English, uh, and I spend a lot of time working with primary school teachers, helping them see all of the sort of creative opportunities that technology can offer. Ah, interesting! I didn't know about that last part. So, yeah, how, what do you like? How do you introduce them to to that? Like, do you just say that oh, coding is something everyone can do, or like, what's the what's the kind of like professional development training with them? And we start, especially with the early childhood education, it often starts with just craft activities. So we build a computer out of paper or we explore how the Internet works by like holding hands or something like that. So it's um, it's a lot of these unplugged activities that also make it much more approachable for the teachers to start thinking about how they can sort of include computer science into their curriculum uh, without actually even necessarily showing a computer to the kids, because I think it was Dixter who said that computer science has as much to do with computers as astronomy has to do with telescopes. So <laughs> that's kind of the approach I've taken so far, uh, teaching the thinking structures and skills for the uh, teachers. Yeah, um, especially like the the work that we do, like uh, as web developers mostly on, on like high level, it has very little to do with like actual... <laughs> Um, deep down computers, right? In some ways, we've made computers more abstract as, we, as we've made them more approachable for a lot of people. Uh, and it's a great thing that we don't need to worry about the sort of uh, like the lowest level, like the electricity level of things. But that also means that computers have become quite foreign to many of us. And I'm kind of trying to think about the future, like 50 years ahead. What does it mean that like this will be the first generation of kids that will not recognize a computer by the keyboard or the screen or the um, like mouse. Rather, they'll grow up having discussions with Alexa or Siri or <laughs> Google. And what does that mean for our educational system? And are we just raising kids to be like really good users of YouTube or users of word processing file uh, like programs? Or are we kind of showing them how code or computers can be a tool of self-expression and and poetry and problem solving. I, I think that it's 
the world is moving very much into this like consumer mm. uh, usage of, of computing where like you're just um, using everything. Like for example, an iPad, it's it's made primarily to be consumed. There's sure there's like an iPad Pro, but still like the majority of people use it just like I said, to watch YouTube, to watch Netflix. Um, I don't think there's much going on and like you can use this as a tool to do something more. Yeah, I really wish to see that change and kind of show how, yeah, how computers can be a tool of self-expression and, and problem solving, just like crayons or Legos or all these other tools we use in our early childhood. And and I think that's frankly like the future I'm really excited about seeing that kind of weird and colorful and exciting things that people come up with when they use tools in a way that they are not supposed to be used. And in some ways, that is the legacy of technology also. Like today, when we think about technology, we think about a computer, but like technology used to be the combustion engine or technology used to be the bicycle. And I think there's this really fascinating description of technology uh, from Greek, uh, where it comes from originally, that says that technology is the tools to solve a problem and also the skills and attitudes that we humans bring into the problem-solving uh, situation. So the way Greeks would describe te technology is that agriculture is technology, democracy is technology. Mm. And when you broaden kind of the idea of technology, it all of a sudden becomes um, really apparent that we need a much more diverse group of people to get excited about uh technology also computers yeah and speaking about diversity this is i guess how um ah, well maybe majority or maybe not now that you have the book out but um people know of you primarily because of rails girls mm. um and i i just checked it was like the first one was in november 2010 mm. which in one way feels like a very very long time ago but on the other hand it's just like that's only eight years mm -hmm. So not really that long ago. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say this in this way. I like, I don't know. I I think Rails Girls was a long time ago for me. And I haven't been actively involved in, I think, six or even seven years anymore. And I think it's a really important legacy that Rails Girls builds. I think it's like, I wouldn't be writing children's books without the community of people who like really supported and helped me. But in some ways, I hope that Rails Girls will become useless in a couple of years, that it will be like a, as like preposterous an idea as the idea that like girls shouldn't get the same education as boys, the idea that like, oh, technology industries, like women don't belong in, in coding jobs. And somehow, like, I'm wishing that, yeah, that in a few years' time, we won't need Rails Girls anymore because the Ruby community or Rails community in itself and, and the society at large will uh, just evolve to the point where these things are a given. Yeah, I, I hope so as well. But do you think we are actually going in, in that direction? <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 of course, live in a, like a bubble of, of people who all agree with me and it's hard to see kind of on the other side, but I do feel that there is like a larger societal understanding of why these skills are important. And especially given sort of the recent discussions around algorithms and fake news and democracies and yeah. influence, I think people are starting to see how much power computer scientists hold and how computer science has become kind of the way to understand the world in a way that economics or physics used to be in the past. So I, I don't know, I, I, I do feel a little bit hopeful or even a lot hopeful about the future <laughs> but i tend to be an optimist 
Well, what was the original idea like when when you were discussing of of doing this event? Like, w- in what way did you want to do this? Because, like, yeah, obviously you can't learn programming in one day. So, was it just you approach that this is something anyone can do, or like, what was the original? I think it was. So I I was studying in California at the time and I took some Ruby classes and then I moved back to Helsinki where no one else was interested in programming, sort of my peer group of of other students. And then me and Karri Sarnen, who nowadays works at Airbnb, like we decided to just put together like a quick workshop, mainly with the like sort of free goals. The first goal was to build something visible. So instead of like, spending a lot of time starting like this is a variable this is a loop this is like the theory of computer science just mm-hmm. have people experience of like give the experience of what it means to like write code and then for them to be able to show that hey like i made this and and this is what i built uh the following monday then the second goal was to give these um people and with these people i mean myself too <laughs> uh a group and community of other like-minded women who were interested in about computers and computer science and then the third and in some way very important topic was also to introduce them to the local ruby community uh through the coaches which could be women or men and i think those kind of three goals were the foundation of Rails Girls events. And then there was a lot of this like quirky and fun and uh, exciting branding. And like, we tried to make things very welcoming and friendly, basically like what I wish I would have had when I moved to Helsinki. But in some ways it's a product of its era. I, I don't think like problems are that simple anymore in a good way. And and that's the, that's the thing about Rails Girls also, like it was never intended to be a global movement and had i known it would become like such a huge thing and it would like be in i think it's been over 500 cities right now if i go to that like railscouts.com slash events oh wow <laughs> and like touched basically the lives of like thousands or tens of thousands of people even i don't know if i would have had the guts to do anything because like even the name annoys people a lot like <laughs> why do you call it rails girls because it's like <laughs> Adult women taking part. Well, I was 23 and I'm not a native English speaker, so girls felt like a fun and rhyming yeah. thing. Like, there's so many things I wouldn't have done if I had known how big of an influence it would end up having, but I'm glad I didn't. And I'm glad, I'm glad I did. Uh, at the same time, I'm also like really trying to underline the idea that I think Rails goes is not a panacea for like all problems in tech. Mm-hmm. And as mentioned, I hope that it doesn't become a structure that like um, stays a structure for the sake of itself. Yeah, but no one just plans out to build a global movement. Like this this <laughs> no. happens, right? You, you had no idea and you couldn't. No, that's true. And even if you planned for it, it probably might not happen. It, this is, I guess, the only way that can happen. <laughs> yeah, what you said, the people have a problem with name. I feel that like nowadays, some people will have problems no matter what you do. And this is also, I think, to, to one degree going against the flow. So in, instead of like helping or, or trying to improve they just push back just because they don't like one particular thing and i i don't think that's very helpful in the long run it's true i think as a like young woman who works in the field of technology just the fact that i have opinions and i'm online already makes me like a, a target for all kinds of 
like really angry and aggressive uh, emails. And it's really interesting to see because I like my technology background comes from the Ruby community, which obviously is a very sort of friendly and welcoming place to grow up in. Like we are nice because Matt is nice and so <laughs> forth. But then you run into these other communities uh, not to like blame anyone, but say like Linux, uh, like Linux Torvalds, and he's kind of like more aggressive style of, of communicating. Yeah, but but now he's like maybe reversing course, which I'm like, yeah. what what which just I, happened? I, I love that. Like empathy wins in the end, and, and like Ruby people were right all along the way. <laughs> uh, I think it's something that is going to change for sure, and I, I hope so that we we are just going to see like a more more empathic and more more like friendly future for the development world. Yeah. I, I I hope so as well. And yeah, speaking of Ruby community, um, I was actually there when you guys received the Ruby Hero Award. That was like completely coincidental because I was in in Portland at that time. I had no idea it was happening. <laughs> I I guess you guys were expecting it, but still, it was very um, was very inspiring. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, it was such a like a big moment because it's a group of people. I for sure admire a lot and, and respect and I think they've done a lot of work kind of the Ruby community to the to the not only the Ruby the language but also just to make the internet a more friendly place to be in so yes I was very honored about that <laughs> <laughs> did you have anything to do with the summer of code or is this just like a completely separate spin-off so it's one of the beauties I think of when you let an idea out of your hands I think it was very hard for me to at some point like let go of Rails girls and and see it grow. But then when I started to see all of the things that would happen when people kind of embraced it and, and started to build stuff around it, uh, it was just very evident that yes, this is the way uh, things grow. So the Rails Girls Summer of Code project is like um, completely run uh, from Berlin, or at least is at least it used to be, um, and it's under the uh, Travis Foundation. So. Mm-hmm. So so, but I like again. I I have huge respect for the people who are doing it year after year and like making a big dent into the universe. And I'm happy that I could maybe inspire them a little bit on that journey. Yeah, yeah, it's it's awesome, and and I like how they basically took one thing and then ran with it. Um, and that that's why I ask because like it doesn't seem to be really related other than in name. But I think it's uh, it's a very good project, and every year it's like it feels like it's growing bigger and bigger. There's like never been a official structure around Railscale, so there's never been like an association or I don't know, like an organization or a company behind Railscale. It's always been almost like anarchistic in its <laughs> lack of structure, which sometimes makes it hard for, like, say, companies that approach us to say be like oh we would like to fund or partner with the entire organization of rails because i'm like i like it's it's very much a grassroots driven thing like there's no way i could like ask everyone to do something and and i kind of like it that way i think rails girls should be as wild and free as the internet itself Mm -hmm. and and serve as long as there's a purpose and a need and that comes from the kind of the participants and the users not from from like the companies or, or the organizers. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I agree. So how does one go from organizing events to doing like uh, children <laughs> books? For the participants. Were you always into illustrating or like? No, I, so I worked at Code Academy, this like online coding platform mm-hmm. as one of their first employees in New York. And because I had left my friends and my family back home in Helsinki, I really missed like having something of my own uh, beyond sort of the very exciting work of being in a startup and 
doing like coding education for uh, millions of users at the time. And I would start writing these like tiny stories around the girl character Ruby, which emerged in the margins of my computer science books in, I think, when was it like when, when I was studying pretty much computer science for the first time um, in 2009. And every time I would run into something I didn't understand, like object oriented programming or arrays or hashes or whatnot i would try to imagine how would like a girl called movie explain this concept and then i would do these little doodles and drawings and i would practice those things in new york in the morning when i had some time for myself and then when i moved back to helsinki i didn't first know what i would want to do with my life there was very little sort of like finland is five million people and it's a tiny tiny country and not that many like exciting opportunities i'm from slovenia which has two million so you know (laughs) oh even yeah well you know you know what it is like to be in in a small country yeah so i decided that i need to do like something of my own also and for the longest of time ruby was supposed to be a side project that i would like i would still look seriously for like a job but then uh, then I decided that I would put the project on Kickstarter. And this was 2014. And the Learn to Code movement was kind of gaining traction at the time mm-hmm. a lot already. But like I had never written a book. I had never illustrated professionally anything. I considered myself to be like a mediocre programmer at the time. But I figured that there's enough kind of Ruby programmers I had met through Rails skills who would kind of trust and support me in, in this project because I had also heard from them. Like I had this Tumblr where I would post pictures and I think they are still on, online, which is kind of the weird thing about when you start a project <laughs> online, you can see the legacy and, and how it's uh, kind of built up. So yeah. Uh, yeah, you definitely had a huge following. Like you, you raised like 10K in um, what, three and a half hours, something like that. That was insane. So I, but I, in all honesty, I asked for 10,000 because I figured that's like a sum where I could dedicate a few months to Ruby and making like the book happen. And in the end, the Kickstarter campaign raised almost $400,000. <laughs> and kind of that's a moment when a lot of people celebrate. But honestly, it was a very frightening moment for me because I had never like thought that this would be a real full-time job. And I don't know, it, it was just, yeah, overwhelming in a lot of ways. And also it became a very different project because when you're making a book for your like Ruby programmer friends and asking for 10,000 versus getting 400,000 and all of a sudden you have 10,000 people who are like, anxiously waiting for this like great children's book about the future of programming <laughs> it's a different thing and i think the two years after the kickstarter campaign were among the most stressful ones in my life and yeah uh i'm really happy that that the book eventually came out it was a little bit well a year delayed because i knew nothing about publishing and how slow they move <laughs> and most importantly i'm really thankful for the creative freedom and also the support and kind of the community that was built around Ruby already at that point. Yeah, but every Kickstarter project is delayed. Otherwise, it's not a Kickstarter project, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I kept telling myself. But when I received (laughs) this very angry email saying that, like, you've destroyed my children's Christmas and, like, you're never going to 
do this thing. And I was at some point doubting like whether I'm going to actually complete the book because, yeah, there's a lot of anxiety in making a book alone. But I did. Yeah, I, I guess the pressure is much larger if you receive more funds. Funds, I guess I so. uh, for you, it might be better to have like, um, I don't know, 10K, 20K and then just do it as a passion project. And now it was, yeah, like you said, the full-time thing. I don't know. So I... I don't know. I, I think, of course, I'm insanely lucky because that Kickstarter campaign gave me like the freedom and flexibility and create like to, to pursue the kind of creative project that otherwise would have been impossible, of course. But I think it also came with a price. And um, the price was that something that was supposed to be fun and joyful for a long time, it became very stressful and very uh, like anxiety inducing. So I think it's only been in the recent years that I've actually started to enjoy being a children's book author and being like, whoa, how lucky I am that I get to <laughs> kind of study machine learning and teach it to six-year-olds or, you know, like just work with these teachers globally and, and so forth. But yeah, it was worth it in the end. I would never do it again. I would never run <laughs> a crowdfunding project. Well, why did you decide to do it on Kickstarter in the first place? I So Code Academy was in the same investor portfolio as Kickstarter. So we both mm. had United uh, Union Square Ventures as the investors. I knew some of the Kickstarter people sort of casually and I had been to their offices and then they always said that, oh, this like side project you have would make for a perfect Kickstarter project. So I, I think that's the reason. And like, honestly, I just thought that it would be for the kind of the Rails Girls slash Ruby community. I didn't realize that there was such a big kind of general audience appetite for a project like this. Yeah. And you, you are, are now doing the third uh, version or like, is it even a version? Is it addition? Um, um, I, I don't know. Or yeah. So the first book I think that I'm still most famous for is the Adventures in Coding book, which is about computational thinking and mm -hmm. kind of this like underlying thinking structures, like how do you decompose a problem? What is an algorithm? Kind of these general ideas around computer science that you need to understand even before you write the first uh, line of syntax or code. And then, um, then there's a lot of activities that teach you think, to think like a programmer. But pretty soon I realized that, oh, wow, like actually there's uh, something even deeper that we need to address and like what even is a computer so what is the hardware of a computer what is the software what is the like input output process and then the second book is kind of this Alice in Wonderland type of a, a story where Ruby falls inside of the computer and learns how electricity turns into logic gates and logic <laughs> gates turn into hardware and so forth and so forth so it's an interesting kind of experience um, to uh, write about something so abstract. And then the third book is about the internet. So how do computers uh, like talk to each other? And it's basically a story of communication of like how computers uh, on hardware level, they talk to each other. And then on software level, they talk to each other. And then also what happens when the 6 billion of us are connected to one another and, and talk to each other. And yeah, uh, the fourth book that I'm working on right now is a story of machine learning and AI and how oh, computers wow. are changing the world. And it's been really exciting to think about, like, how do you explain artificial intelligence for six-year-olds? Or how do you talk about bias in training data or about, like, reinforcement learning or, or like, neural networks in a way that makes sense for a six-year-old? But that's not going to come out in English before, I think, next year only. 
So it's going to be a while still. Since six years old, people are probably not listening to uh, this <laughs> podcast. How do you explain that to children? <laughs> oh, like one exercise I do with kids is I tell them that in the past, computers learned by being given like exact instructions. So like, let's practice this by giving each other instructions of how to brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. And then the kids go like, move your hand towards the toothbrush and grab the toothbrush. And then I say, mm -mm -mm, can you define to me what a toothbrush is? Or did you remember that the you'd need to take the toothpaste out? And which hand do you use for that? So they learn about like giving step-by-step -step instructions. Mm -hmm. And then I tell them that, ah, you, like, you notice how like brittle these instructions become and how many different kinds of scenarios you need to take into account. And this is the problem with, programming like these instructions break easily but then like all of these researchers came up with the idea of machine learning and that's where you give computers examples instead of instructions and when you give enough different examples the computer will build a model out of that training data and then it will be able to recognize these things much better and then the kids draw a picture of themselves brushing their teeth or they collect pictures uh, and then we talk a little bit about bias, like how if we don't have a picture of a kid with like glasses, the computer might not be able to recognize that this is a kid who brushes their teeth or if we don't like just including a lot of different examples in their little training mm -hmm. data set. So stuff like that is what I, I try to do with kids a lot. And then, of course, have like stories and characters the kids can relate to. Uh, as a part of that so when you dive into a topic like that um is, is there something that you don't expect to find like <laughs> you, you you think you're gonna like end up in one way but it turns out to be completely something else always and most <laughs> of the time it's the kids who tell me the right answers and kind of direct me um in my questions like the internet book was started by the idea of a little boy who came to me and went like linda is internet a place <laughs> and then i'm like uh i don't know like internet is a network of computers and it's the information superhighway and you're surfing online and then i realized that oh my goodness like i'm talking about the internet of the 90s because <laughs> this kid has never disconnected online and the metaphors i use are completely outdated like how should i go about explaining what the internet is and i came up with the storyline of the kids who build internet out of snow and and it's a good one. <laughs> it's going to be out in the beginning of October, so you might want to check it out. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a lot about a lot like uh, being open and receptive for the feedback of the children and and trying to understand how they see and experience the world. Do you have like ch child beta testers, which you give the book to? Yeah. Well, basically, I have a goddaughter, and I know, of course, I have like kids around the world who who help me and and give me feedback. It's one of the best parts about my job. I know in the first book, which I have right here with me, uh, you play a, lo a lot with the names. So you have like the penguin Linux guy who's and uh, the Android thingy, and I, I think was like some of the was it leopard snow leopard i don't know it's like one one of the oh. um, <laughs> tigers of Mac. Um, yeah. Uh, do do you still do that? Like uh, pick up yeah. funny names that some somehow mean something more to us who know what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, there's so that's the kind of children's books I in like. I think the best kinds of children's books speak to us at many different levels, and I always try to hide like a ton of tiny Easter eggs and jokes inside of each book, and 
sometimes the parents get them, sometimes they don't. And sometimes the kids get them and sometimes they don't. And I think that's the joy of making books is you can like have a lot of different levels in there. So yes, every single book has a lot of sort of pop culture, computer science references, mm. as well as names and, and stuff like that, uh, that hopefully like people will appreciate when they find it. Yeah, I always like it. So I I don't generally read children books, but I do watch a lot of cartoons. Hmm. Um, and I I love, I don't know, Pixar is known for doing that, DreamWorks lately as well. Yeah. Like that, that you as an adult, I guess, um, see some other line of um, story that children might miss. Yeah. And I always love that. Like when, I don't know, the, the famous example, I guess, is Up, which starts very depressingly, but Like ch children only see that um, they are depressed, like the the, the couple is depressed, uh, but they don't know that they just lost a child. Yeah. But to us, it's like, oh Jesus, this is very deep and very dark. Yeah. And I, I love stories like that, and I guess it's also hard to do them properly. I don't know. I don't. I think it's just what would make me smile when I'm either reading a book as a 32 year old or as like a seven year old. So. Mm, it's hard and it takes a lot of dedication and effort and and also time I think that's something that a lot of children's book or books authors don't necessarily have that they need to sort of crunch out new books so quickly that they don't have that sort of luxury to be able to inject a lot of humor and uh, care into their books but that's one of the nice things about uh, the way I've worked is that I, I do have that luxury and I hope that I get to work on these things still in the future i think one of the things i want to work in the future also is like a book about the history of technology and how how we needed so many different kinds of disciplines from material sciences to psychology to math to 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 um graphic design to come together and also people with very diverse backgrounds say like mm -hmm. claude shannon who fell in love with philosophy and and electricity or or other lovelace or just these like very um very diverse and very uh, cross-disciplinary people in order to build what we now nowadays know as the pc and kind of the genesis story of of the computer how it wasn't like just it didn't just fall out of the sky it, it emerged through the cooperation of different people do you ever like think of writing a book for like teenagers or young adults or, or something like that i think my niche is really like the the kids and through them the parents mm -hmm. uh but i do know that there's a lot of really cool projects around teenagers one of my favorites is um from amy, amy wibovo she writes these bubble sort designs which are these kind of sailor moon and and like just really funny and amazing and thorough and smart like uh, books about computer science and and so forth I think especially for teenage girls but in all honesty like I learn a lot reading them um, like she's one of my favorites and there's a ton of other uh, really cool efforts and I think this is the one area in life where like it actually helps that you have a lot of people like kind of competing with you even though mm -hmm. I don't think it's competition I think it's just different perspectives And since computer science has been taught pretty much from one single perspective for such a long time, it's just good that we have a diversity of voices. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And like, if, if you guys are all successful in this, one day, like, we won't need projects like Rails Girls, I guess. There you go. <laughs> I hope. Absolutely. 
I, I guess one of the things people might know you of, which um, actually I didn't, is that you um, spoke on TED a lot, like you did, what, three or four talks? <laughs> and like, uh, totally, there are like over two million views on those. And I'm, I'm get well, actually, that's probably then even bigger than, than Rails Girls. <laughs> um, so how, how did you get into that? Mm, I did a talk at CERN originally, um, where they found the Higgs boson particle and it was a TEDx talk which was videographed and then I think it was like picked up by the TED team mm -hmm. to put on their website and it was three or four years ago already and then last year I did a residency at the TED HQ in, in, in uh, New York and I did another talk over there about how computers work and Uh, yeah, I I think I've just always enjoyed my role as a storyteller, and it's been a lot of fun just um, telling stories around the work I do, and and it seems to work for the TED format also, like this short mm -hmm, snippets mm -hmm. of stories. Yeah, I saw that TED resident thing. What what is that? I don't. I never heard about that before. It's they bring people into the TED HQ for like I think three months to work on. Uh, their project. In my case, I was working on the internet book at that point. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you get to talk and meet like-minded people who are doing interesting things. And I think it honestly originally started because they had like a uh, just a leftover wing in the, the building that wasn't like occupied <laughs> by anyone. And they were thinking of like, oh, well, what they could do with, with that space. Yeah, but that's that's good. I give some some space and I, I guess like like-minded people you can bounce ideas off. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I know you like running as well. So what <laughs> got you into running? Was it just because you needed to relieve the stress of all those emails that, that were coming from Kickstarter? <laughs> or yeah. was it something else? I think running is in the same way interesting as coding for a lot of people. I think I go into the same kind of mental flow state when I run as some people go when they program. And running for me is... It's not problem solving. It's not like, it's kind of a meditation of like doing something instead of like living in my head, living in my full body. And I especially love trail running. So running in the forest and like long distance running. Mm -hmm. And for me, it just like represents a um, yeah state of mind where I, I can just focus on one thing at a time. Like I'm not looking at my phone or or worrying about emails or or anything like that at the same time when did you start running three times first time i was 15 i started running and i loved it then second time when i was living in new york i started running and then i think two or three years ago um because i was traveling so much and still i am am today uh, i needed something that would keep me kind of active and in shape but then i realized that it's much more like spiritual or even Uh, like much more uh, helpful for my uh, emotional side uh, or spiritual side than the physical like well-being that I get from running and then properly I think I've run for like or started to compete actually only in the last year and you compete like in uh, ultra marathons because you said you like yeah I think I kind of when I think my like favorite is like the 30k mm -hmm, roughly mm -hmm. like half marathon that's that's something where like You don't need to, because that's the thing, like if I would run an ultra or something, then that would mean that I would never be able to, or I would need to recover so long after that, that no running for me. So I like competitions where 
like the recovery time is not that intense, but I do think that one day I'll have to do this. <laughs> but I think the cool thing about trail running, for instance, compared to marathon runners is the community, because I think marathon runners sometimes tend to be very strict towards themselves and they seem to be very goal oriented and somehow like um, almost forbidding in like some ways, whereas trail runners like there's no way of comparing one trail to another mm -hmm. because the height distances make it so different and it means that like when you're competing you're competing against yourself in some ways there's no way of saying that someone is like a sub three hour oh, yeah, uh, yeah. trail marathon yeah. runner or anything like that because again it depends on the landscape mm. and that makes it somehow more like social and more whimsical and more fun And I've really started to kind of embrace the whole community. And there's a lot of vegan people who are oh, running yeah, yeah. trails. And I don't know, there's just this sense of um, a lifestyle that really resonates with me right now. So I, I gather you read any books from um, Scott Jurek? Uh, yeah, and, and then I just recently read this really fascinating book called Footnotes. That, mm -hmm. that It's like an English li literature professor who talks about like... Mm, also sort of the the physical side of running but also the cognitive and like environmental uh biological side of running and then of course one of my favorite running books is the Haruki Murakami like what I think about when I think about running and I've actually ran in all the places where he runs <laughs> that's awesome so I was in Kawa in Hawaii a few years ago I went running there and then I've run in Tokyo and then I've run in Boston where he also spent some time so 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 kind of running in the footpath of, of Murakami. Now I ask about Jurek because he had this book, Eat and Run, which was one of the first um, running books I read, um, where he's like, he's a ultra distance, uh, like marathoner, I guess. But yeah, he, he runs like for a really long time and really fast, like incredibly fast. I, I don't know how he does it, but he's also a vegan and he talks about um um food a lot it's it's a very interesting book that i i guess will um like resonate with you because you um can combine these two things as well like uh veganism and like long distance trail running yeah and there's so many things in running that kind of apply to like just last weekend i ran a race and i had the like the famous after like 14 kilometers my legs just started to ache and like it wasn't even a long distance but I, I had no idea how I'm gonna make the pass like, like it was a 24k run mm -hmm. and then I needed to just tell myself like just keep moving your freaking <laughs> legs just keep moving keep moving and in some ways that's like a total metaphor for the Ruby project also I, I feel like because um, this is a one-person project there's no VC funding there's uh, not a lot of employees but I think that's the strength of what I do right now is that I have like a 50 year plan of what I want Ruby to be like in in 50 years and I just keep moving towards that and I take one step at a time and I like that is the, exactly the same feeling I got last weekend when I was running mm -hmm. I'm just gonna move my feet and then this is gonna be over and I'm gonna be happy and then I'm gonna think about why on earth do I do these things to myself but <laughs> yeah Yeah, exactly. But the the reason for me it's like if I plan to go run, I don't know, uh, 40k, mm -hmm. I complete 20k and I'm like this is nothing. Yeah. If I go run 20k at like tw I, I don't know, at 15 I'm destroyed like oh, that's so far. <laughs> it's it's so weird True. like um when you when you prepare yourself for a long distance, you can like just easily run the shorter distance. Yeah. 
and not all runs are same. Like oh, yeah, I, sure. I was in Singapore last week, so I think there was like a jet lag element and everything. And then it's it's just a very sort of yeah. It, there's so many surprises. Like you never know what's gonna happen when you go on a race, and uh, it's it's one of the joys of the the sport also. So how do you pick up? races to apply to i don't know I, i have a bunch of friends who run also so mostly it's been them who have been suggesting but we've been talking a little bit about doing races across europe as well and, and it's been really interesting to like kind of think about what that might look like mm. there's a thing that's popular here i guess even more so in croatia is like um mm. sort of trail run but you don't know exactly where you're going so it's sort mm -hmm. of like half orientation half run oh nice Yeah, so at the start you get a map with like points you have to go to, and um, it's it's very interesting because like not well a couple of people always take things seriously, but the majority don't, mm. and it's very much like you said uh, a very cool community, and you just you just run and have fun and like help each other even like when when there's a point that's uh, marked wrongly and you like meet someone who's who's like searching for it, you say oh no it's up there just like, go there. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, it's I, I really enjoy runs like that where uh, they say, oh, it's going to be between 20 and 30k, depends on like how lost you get. <laughs> Depending on how you do. Yeah, I, I realized that for me, like orienteering, that's something I've tried also because there's a bunch of friends who do it a lot and, and there's a really strong culture here in Finland. It's actually one of the things that suits us well because there's this famous competition because during the summertime, the sun doesn't set at all. Uh, in certain parts of Finland, so hmm. like you can still easily read a newspaper out in the like in the midnight sun at 2 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> and there's this uh, orienteering competition that starts in the evening and it goes throughout the night. And there's this one leg or one one group of people that need to go in the forest in the dark, but everyone else can sort of enjoy the nightless night. Anyways, uh, orienteering like I realized that for me it's too much problem solving. <laughs> I just enjoy the white space that running offers to me and i just want to run and i just want to like do that um but something where like uh but that's then the trail running is nice because it gives you like things to watch at because i could never do uh treadmill running for instance that would oh, be yeah. just the worst i i could never 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 do that yeah to me that sounds like torture yeah and it actually is that's the thing Treadmills were originally invented by the British government in the Victorian era as a way um, to sort of make the prisoners do meaningless, stupid work. And it was <laughs> actually also Oscar Wilde who got like convicted into prison because of his um, sort of yeah sexual behavior uh, <laughs> at the time. And he needed to run on a treadmill and it was a punishment for the longest of times. And that's how it still feels for me, yeah. <laughs> the treadmill running. Yeah, for me too. So the best thing I do in a new city, like I, I have Strava, which allows me to kind of like find or explore routes that other runners use. And I always pack with me a pair of uh, sneakers and I go on a run pretty much like wherever I go, I try to do that. And then there's certain cities that are just gorgeous for running. Like one of the most surprising runs I've ever done is in Seoul, in South Korea. There's this Namsan Trail, this like smack middle in the city, this mountain that has just a beautiful park. And it's it's one of the most sort of joyful runs I've ever done. And then, of course, New York, mm -hmm. um, London, uh, San Francisco has some beautiful hikes and, and runs. 
I, I think it's also like a very underrated way of exploring a new city. And yeah, I, I agree. Like I almost always, when I go to a new city, I go for like 5K or 10K just around mm. the city. And it helps me like every other day that I'm there mm. to just like orient myself where things yeah. are. Because you like when, when you're running, you go way faster than when you're walking and you like can cover much more of the city and it gives you a good perspective for like the next couple of days you'll spend there. And also I think it connects your mind and body together in a way that like, because we travel so fast with airplanes right now. And I, especially I travel a lot in Asia and in US. So it's always like a jet lag and I feel funny for the first few days and, and running kind of, it feels like I reconnect my soul that has been left behind somewhere <laughs> in the Atlantic ocean or the, the Mediterranean, uh, the, like pacific ocean or somewhere in between with my body that it has already moved to the new continent so there's a little bit of that spiritual component also for me so do you uh, listen to anything when you run or is it just you and your shoes uh i wish it was only me and my shoes i think that's what my running coach would want me to do but <laughs> uh and to listen to the breath and, and so forth but i do actually listen quite a lot of audiobooks uh, and podcasts while i'm running and uh yeah music sometimes but mostly talk because i think talk gives me like the greatest sense of kind of uh pacing mm. yeah no i'm i'm the same i don't like running with music because then i tend to um run on, uh, on this on the beat of the music which is mm. never good yeah um because either go too fast or too slow <laughs> not good <laughs> um but yeah I, I love listening to to audiobooks but i had to um change my perspective a bit at, at first because um unlike regular books on audiobooks i feel okay with myself if i just completely wonder so if my if my mind just catches on something on one sentence and i start thinking about it and then like i don't know five pages of the book just go by and i don't go back and check i'll just i just go forward like whatever i didn't miss that that much or something yeah. and and i think it's it's like good because i can still think and also, like, gather new knowledge or new, I don't know, ideas, I guess. I think podcasts have worked for me for that, because I think podcasts are short enough for the attention span to kind of, like, even though, uh, like, you wouldn't follow every single sentence, you can go back. But I really, really love listening to fiction, mm -hmm. and especially these, like, epic long fiction books uh, that kind of do the same thing, where they allow you to miss a few sentences in between, whereas... I think one of the hardest things is like popular science and like books that actually require you to focus a lot. I was listening to this book, The Gene, uh, that talks about like the history of human genome and, and so forth. And I like it was a very frustrating run because I think every <laughs> like 50 meters I needed to stop and like go back a few <laughs> uh, 30 seconds and be like, hmm, what did he say? Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a thing that happens. Um yeah, I, that, that's why. Yeah, I don't. I don't think like hard books like that for for audio books. For those books, I just order like actual books. <laughs> so you, you said you travel a lot, and um, what's the? Uh, I I don't know. Like for me, traveling. Yeah, sure. Airplanes are fast, but um, you're stuck at the airport for a very long time. Um, I, I really don't like that part of, of traveling that much. And I guess since you travel a lot, um, is it something that you just take into account or are you also frustrated by that? 
I would have the luxury of being able to travel on a train or, you know, spend a lot more time. But I'm the kind of traveler who goes to Australia for two days and then travels like three days to get there. So I I don't know. I I think there's a lot of things that I I wish were a little bit different in my current traveling schedule. And it's less of a joy than like a chore right now. So whenever I get invitations to say programming conferences or rail skills events around the world, I'm like, oh, I wish I could say yes. But like, there's no way I can travel anymore because like just the the other, like the real, the, real job, like the, the kind of requirement driven um jobs require me to be in certain places at certain hours but maybe one day there will be a time for like a more conscious travel um moving to into like different environments and places at ease mm-hmm. but now it's mostly like the boring kind of business travel <laughs> i guess at least you reach the point when you're okay with saying no I, i think the worst part with people that like succeed and become popular is they don't know how to say no and they're just constantly either working or traveling or doing anything and then at one point they just burn out i think i'm in the latter group still to be honest <laughs> i have a hard time saying no to a lot of things it's also because i feel like i'm so aligned in what i do i i get to do something i like care about a lot i do something that i'm pretty good at right now and then i do also something that feels very meaningful uh for the people who like uh say use the books or or like Yeah, so there, there's this impact and sort of almost missionary zeal in what I do, which makes it really hard to say no uh, at times. But I'll need to start doing that more in the future. Yeah, how do you um, manage your work-life balance when work is something that's more like uh, that came from a hobby, from something that you really like to do? Yeah. How, how do you prevent yourself to work too much? <laughs> I don't. Aww. That's the dirty <laughs> secret. Yeah. I uh nowadays I have a manager and she's great. She says to me that like this is something you should prioritize and this is something you sh- can do just like so and so. And we try to make a schedule to me, but I'm I'm still really impossible, I think <laughs> in many ways. Um I don't know. I I started to think about different hobbies that wouldn't have nothing to do with my job. So Say running is one of those things, um, mm-hmm. cooking, uh, things that I would do only for the sake of myself. And then also just like figuring out the time scope of things. I think when you look at people at one point of their career and then you feel like, oh, wow, what an like, amazing amount of things that people has achieved. And I wish I was really in that person's shoes it's hard to or it's easy to forget that it took time like rail skills in the beginning it was very messy and small and sort of toy like and now because there was nine years in between or 10 years almost wow (laughs) next year i think it's going to be a 10 year anniversary uh, of rail skills now it's massive but it's because it has the luxury to grow uh pretty slowly but consistently Mm-hmm. And I think with Ruby, it's the same thing where for the first few years, I was so anxious to get everything done and sort of all the things I imagined in my head um, that I didn't take joy in the idea that maybe it takes me 10 years, maybe it takes me 20 years, the best if I'm going to get there. So that's something I try to remind myself right now is that like I don't need to finish everything right now. I'm not a startup. I don't have VCs in my back. Uh, I have the luxury of time and and sort of the compound interest that time offers to any big project so for instance even though I have like I think three or four book ideas in my head I 
told that like next year there's not going to be a new book because I need to sort of breathe for a while and get new ideas and and work on other stuff for a while. So that's probably the biggest change in my brain that has happened in the past years or so. And that has helped me also to kind of um, like avoid burnout uh, for the time being at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is very in- important in-, in things like that. So yeah, keep an eye on that. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> get yeah, like uh, as as many uh, as much sleep as possible is like uh, number one advice, I guess. Oh, I'm good at sleeping. Yeah, it's so good. I think one of the important things is also that I I work on things that I really like and care about. And for instance, for a while I had employees and I really liked and cared about the employees, but I didn't like and care managing them. And all of a sudden I started to see my role kind of shifting into this weird sort of managerial role. And, and like most of my time was spent like figuring out grants we could look for, like they were teachers, these, these employees I had. And then at some point I just realized that this is not going to make me happy in the long term and, and sort of setting boundaries and also defining success in a way that doesn't necessarily like align with the world of hacker news and <laughs> you know these like high growth uh, communities i think success for me would mean that i get to work on ruby for the next 50 years and over 50 years time it's going to become something substantial and big if i just keep putting one leg in front of another and, and keep moving and uh yeah it's the running metaphor it's not a like I'm, I'm not a short distance runner. I'm definitely a long distance runner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but still, even saying that, like looking at your um, the honors and the awards you received, that's insane. Like just mm. going through the list, I guess, would be too long. But like, like I don't know, thirty under thirty, Finland State Award, mm-hmm. uh, like fifty most inspiring women in technology, stuff like that. I mean, that's yeah. How do you define success if this if this is not in it? I mean, this is insane. I now it sounds bad to say, but I. <laughs> I think the only like thing that really matters to me out of those things is the Ruby Hero Award because it came <laughs> from people who like people I really respected and trusted. Not that I don't respect and trust the people who voted for the other stuff, but mm-hmm. it's nice, but it's not what drives my work. Whereas kind of the like respect of the Ruby community really helped me become a children's book author. And also the feedback from, say, the teachers or the children that I listen to on a, with a very close ear, but like everything else is just noise, which is fun <laughs> noise, but it doesn't in the end make a big difference for like the way I work. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think it's, it's nice. I mean, even if you, um, yeah, if you don't uh, take it as with as much of, um, uh, I don't know, power as, as Ruby Hero Award, I still mean that this is like, um, some sort of recognition of your work that like no matter yeah. who gives it, it it has to mean something right True. right um yeah so um we've been going at this pretty long and at the end of every uh, episode i i have a standard question now um what would be uh, three recommendations you would give out to a person? And this can be either, I don't know, books or articles or YouTube videos or whatever. Oh, three recommendations. So I think the first is follow your curiosity. That's something I feel like I've maximized always my curiosity, not like maybe the rate of learning or, you know, like the amount of money I make but the curiosity aspect of life and that's something that I think is just something that is inherently 
present in us humans, but it somehow disappears the older we get. So mm-hmm. kind of finding that curiosity and, and letting it drive sort of life choices. Mm-hmm. Then I have a lot of book recommendations, but maybe like if I only allowed to choose one, I would say um, there's this book about Robert Irvin, who basically he said that uh, one day he decided to step into his curiosity and let the curiosity lead his life. And he's a contemporary modern artist who makes these very abstract light um, like uh, artworks. Um, and there's a book about him that is called uh, Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. It's by Lawrence Welsher. And that book, I think, is really impactful for anyone who's kind of trying to become something or someone because it tells about how life can take you to a lot of different places. These, this book was written over, I think, 30 or four, even 40 years. Oh, wow. um, the writer and the, the artist, he's, he's an old, old man right now. Like we're having discussions from the beginning of, I think, 80s. <laughs> and it's just a very kind of disappointment view of life. And then... What would I? Oh, and then the third recommendation would be uh, Björk and her whole like musical catalogy, and maybe that comes with kind of a like a recommendation that um, I think there's a lot of stories about dystopia and technology right now. A lot of people who are kind of fear mongering and scaring us with the technology, and also making artwork that is very dystopian, say like Black Mirror or. Mm-hmm matrix or, or this kind of a worldview and <laughs> i really wish there was more room for utopia and that people would be giving us uh, more utopias around how people and technology and nature and like humanity at large can work together and i think björk is one of those few who are kind of offering us a, a like a post-technology idea of, of what the world might look like if we all lived in harmony together <laughs> still utilizing technology and still kind of creating meaningful art around that and i think she's been doing it since since basically the last 30 years or so and in a very consistent way and i think her kind of whole discography or her whole career has been an inspiration for me in many ways so Mm. when i grow up i wish i can become björk (laughs) (laughs) do you have a favorite album of hers or just like everything Mm, everything (laughs) i think biophilia is my favorite um because she has this like grand ambition that every single track in Biophilia describes one natural phenomenon, so say crystals or lightning or thunder or so. But then she also made an app just when the iPad came out, um, where like the, it was like a collection of these tiny micro apps, where each app teaches you through this natural like phenomenon one concept of music theory. But that's not enough. <laughs> then she made with MIT a bunch of musical instruments specifically for this album and then she created this whole curriculum for schools around how to teach music theory through nature and the ipad app and music and everything and it's just such a gloriously insanely (laughs) bonkers big vision of the world and i i love her for that yeah i I have to check i i know (laughs) nothing of this so yeah thanks Awesome. Um, well, with that, uh, Linda, I would like to thank you for your time. Uh, this was this was really awesome. I'm really happy I, I had you on the show. Good talking to you, and I look forward to seeing the podcast out. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you. Bye. Bye bye. All right, this was my interview with Linda. 
Parallel Passion is still a new podcast. Sharing with your friends and followings helps us a lot. Just send out a tweet or post a link on your Facebook. You want your friends to enjoy a good podcast, right? If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, I'd love to see a new review there. We have a couple, but there's never too many. If you use a different app, please rate, favorite, like, or whatever your podcast app of choice support. This podcast is free, so I would like to thank existing Patreon supporters and invite you to join them by visiting patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-P-O-D. Or open the show notes in your podcast app and follow the Patreon link there. Every dollar goes towards covering the hosting costs and hopefully one day new audio gear. Thank you. You can find this show on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We are at PerpassPod on all of them. All the links from this episode are in the show notes in your podcast app and on our website, parallelpassion.com slash 15. Thank you for listening and have a passionate day.